Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're, they're, very, they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to a Q&A edition of the podcast. It's been a long time since I've done one of these, and it's always fun to put the uh, questions out on social media. And I've actually just relegated it to, it used to be everything. It used to be uh, put questions out on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. And now I pretty much just put them out on the story in Instagram, and I find I get just, ton, just um, tons of answers from you guys on that. So I appreciate uh, everyone who responded with an, uh, a question, and I'm looking forward to answering hopefully all of them. Uh, they're wide, wide-ranging questions, and I really love them because a lot of them, you can tell that a lot of you who asked them have been listening to the podcast, and a lot of these may be related to episodes that we've done fairly recently. So let's kick it off. The first question is Ferg33, who asks... What is a simple way to recover from an ACL and meniscus injury and surgery? Uh, so, uh, great question. I am not a physical therapist, so I'm not going to give you an answer in regards to the, the early stage rehab that you would do in that case. But I can say when in that reconditioning phase where athletes are getting ready to make that jump to return, that uh, final jump to return to play again, and we just want to make sure that all the tissues are ready and ready to go. I I think just body weight isometrics are such a great and powerful tool to make sure the athlete's tissues are truly resilient. And it's one thing where every time we have weights in our hands, and again, I love weights. I think they're awesome. Uh, I love uh, kettlebells and clubs and barbells. Uh, I've probably lifted or utilized just about, not just about everyone. I think actually that uh, prize mate go to Corey Schlesinger, who's lifted just about every type of weight uh, that you could lift in, in different modes and mediums. But for me, I do love that stuff, but it really, when you're in your own body weight and you have no external apparatus or weight that you're gripping or hanging onto or that's on your back, that your body has to prioritize to change its shape a little bit to accommodate that, and it's just you and gravity and the ground and your feet coming up through that, I think that we can really hone the just really great strength and uh, structural integrity and coordination 
of our baseline uh, muscle tissues, our muscles and our, our tendons. And a lot of the, the ability to support those muscles and tendons under fatigue as well. And so it's probably a pretty simple answer, but just being able to get up to an awesome uh, single leg straight leg raise where you're just standing on one leg, you're barefoot, you're not gripping your toes and holding the other leg high off the ground. Being able to do that for two, three, four minutes straight, I find is very important. And then also an isometric lunge hold. You should be able to do that for at least two or three minutes straight with no problem in a good position without and keeping the thorax in mind too, a lot of people do iso lunge holds body weight where they are really like arching forward with the low back and they're pushing those ribs way out over the front leg and they're losing that that cylinder, that cylinder of the two diaphragms in the thorax, that breathing diaphragm, then the pelvic floor diaphragm. So lining that up uh, well and then kind of pulling down and sinking down into the lunge with those diaphragms lined up I find is a good strategy. And then of course in the front leg in the iso lunge, having that heel off the ground slightly uh, bringing more uh, ball of the foot strength in there into the system and being able to do that. There's really no like like getting away from it. It's not like a squat where you can wiggle out of things. So that's just a really basic answer. I know there's a ton of stuff uh, in that whole world, but I'll just leave my answer to the simple isometrics because I think those can be done just with a huge amount of intention and can really rise a lot of ships uh, when you're working and just trying to get back to uh, that full go athleticism. All right, next question is Sam likes biomechanics. Uh, this is a great question. Programming and training strategies for more strength and muscle-driven athletes uh, when limited access to weights. And so this is really cool because I know a lot of people found themselves in that type of situation uh, over the past year when gyms are closed and, and people don't have weights anymore. And I was thinking about this uh, quite a bit myself. Um, a lot of athletes that I had been uh, writing programs for uh, when the pandemic hit and when people couldn't lift weights and things like that. I, I do work with a lot of athletes that you would categorize as elastic, where honestly, a break from weights is going to be just what the doctor ordered in a sense. It's just what you need to kind of get that that stimulus out of your system and really get into that body weight and free energy return phase. I, again, I, I do like the idea of having phases where you're alternating heavier periods of training with lighter periods of training, as we've seen a lot of coaches talk about. But for somebody who, as Angus Bradley talked about, like a wide infrasternal angle, they can handle more compression. They are muscle-driven. They like to be loaded. How do we do that within a more body weight type setting where you don't have some of these things? So just a couple ideas. Well, first, Sam asked, is it still worth transitioning to a more elastic training style uh, in this uh, scenario? And so but first, let's just talk about how do we approach the weaknesses of an elastic athlete or a muscle-driven athlete? And I forget which guest has said this on the show, but it's we can approach the weakness and train that weakness as long as it do, isn't like interfering with their development. So for a muscle-driven athlete, we can do plyometrics and depth jumps and bounding and hurdle hops for sure. But the question is, is how much volume are we going to do? And the, the answer, I think, is we can do as much volume as they're not showing decreases in rate of force development and particularly in their actual sport-specific modes they want to operate in, sprinting and, and specific jumping, maybe jumping off the run or, or various cutting or, or, or things like that. Because I, I think with plyometrics, when we introduce plyometrics, it's very important, as with every exercise that ever gets introduced, is there will be, you will be improving in various exercises, but sometimes it's just because you are getting better at the skill of doing that, ex that exercise. And you will probably be transferring over into the main skill for a while, but if you go too long, eventually you might get to a point where you're actually becoming a specialist in hurdle hops and those types of things. But uh, maybe that's a little bit besides the point here. So all I'm trying to say is I think you can transition if a, you are a muscle-driven athlete into 
uh, that type of work. And I have actually had uh, and worked with people who are more wide, wide ISA, more muscle-driven people and put them on what I would call a very elastic program in the right dosage. And they have improved tremendously. So there's no, there's no like truly hard rules with all these things. I think it's these things that we, we talk about with muscle and elastic driven, they're definitely to be noted, but I believe that they are also guidelines. And I think that we, we shouldn't think that we can't train a certain way because of X, Y, Z. But that, with that being said, I would just say, just say, take care in how much you're doing and just note, is it causing a decrease in, or just, I think that the big thing that happens when you're doing training, you don't fundamentally, your body doesn't fundamentally like is you just feel uh, sluggish on a global level. So noting that as well. And then uh, with the body weight scenario too, or just training in your garage or basement or whatever, there, there are things that can be certainly done to promote high levels of muscle tension that fits with more muscle driven athletes, pistol squats, skater squats. I like, uh, like even like physio ball uh, squats with the physio ball or sandwich between your back and the wall and working off one leg which is like a single support, but it allows just a unique stimulus that, that doesn't anteriorly tilt you. And you can find unique ways to load that one up. And as well as some of the, like the Graham Morris wrote an article on the towel isometrics, doing max overcoming isometrics, just using a towel. So if you uh, look back on the Just Fly Sports uh, web pages and articles, you should find that one on there. So uh, those are just some guidelines there. Again, I don't think there's there's any truly hard rules. It's just be mindful. If you are training something that's you know your weakness more, you just want to be mindful of the volumes and how much you're doing and how it's changing you and then find ways to still get that compression in the system. All right, this was a... <laughs> thanks for the next question. Alex Lee, who uh, wrote an awesome article on hanging from a bar and just developing that shoulder ability recently. And he asks, what is more spiritually demanding? A five-minute ISO lunge or a three-minute scap hold, or so a three-minute hang from the bar or a five-minute ISO lunge. I would actually say, uh, so this is it's an interesting question because the scap hold, as um, Tommy John, who's been on this podcast before, has said, there's no that's the the isometric that there is absolutely no uh, wiggling. You can't wiggle out of it. You can't like subtly adjust yourself and and hit a different muscle group like you can with the plank. And that's why I think the plank like world record is so long is because there's this whole chain of muscles involved in a plank that can kind of shuttle on and off just to almost keep you up there indefinitely. But when you're hanging from a bar, your grip is the weak point. That's it. Like when that goes, you're done. There's nowhere to go. You can't shuffle force between your index finger and your pinky finger. I mean, I don't think you can. Maybe you could. But there's nowhere to go. And so just for me personally, I've found a five-minute iso lunge to be significantly uh, just more challenging on all levels of my being than and I, I mean again it's hard to I mean they're both hard uh, and honestly I I couldn't even do the three minute uh, hang I could do it when I was rock climbing without too much of a problem but as I've gotten further and further from rock climbing I'm probably in the mid twos right now to be honest so maybe it's not even a good it's a good thing to mention right now but I will say I would say the five minute iso lunch is more spiritually demanding because you're in discomfort it's it's a test to yourself for longer. What I find is when you start getting tired in an ISO hang, and I'm spending a lot of time on this question, but I think this is a really good one. When you start getting tired in an ice in a hang from a bar, when that fatigue comes on, it, it comes on pretty fast. In the sense that you're starting to burn, or your your arms are starting to burn. And I've had the been at the point where I just slipped off the bar. Like my hands just like my right hand was still hanging, but my left hand was literally slipping off the bar. I just could not mentally juice enough uh, willpower into that left hand to keep it up there. And then my right hand eventually slipped off. 
And that was hard. But it's, it's a very local type of fatigue. It's not big and global. And with the ISO lunge, you are just in this position. And it's kind of, it is a thing, I really do believe this, where you can almost always keep going. As if it, it, it's like a David Goggins thing. If you just had 10 more seconds and you had to, you absolutely had to, and your life depended on it, you could go 10 more seconds. And then you could go 10 more seconds. Because there's just, there's just a few more muscle groups that can kind of do the job. Now, granted, I've seen athletes shake like, like almost like an epileptic at three minutes because they were trying to coordinate it so hard. And I honestly, there's those athletes, I just don't think no matter what their mind did, I don't think they were going to be able to, to, to finish it, <laughs> to finish that lunge. But I do find that I think the ISO lunge, you, you see, you see a lot of things you see. Um, I mean, the hang, you, you do see a lot of things too. You, you see athletes who quit real early and you can see where the mind is causing that. But in the ISO lunge as well, especially as it gets prolonged, you can see if athletes are trying to avoid the bottom range or if they're actually sinking down into it and they're actually going into the place that's uncomfortable and they want to be there and they're using breathing to get through it and things like that. And all that being said, just for me personally, I don't, I, I don't tend to use isometrics that are absolute burners. Uh, occasionally I will, but I tend to keep it in a good, like using, using the breath and things that um, Mark Wetzel has, has talked about when he's spoken on ISOs on this podcast. So uh, long story short, I just think the ISO lunge gives you a lot more uh, a pain to deal with over an extended period of time. Let's put it that way. But I, love, I really like both of those uh, movements. Okay, next question. Unlimited athlete. Your favorite workouts, he asked a few questions. Uh, your first is your favorite workouts for speed development, uh, mainly for athletes new to track. So uh, this is a pretty broad question, and I'd like to answer that one. Uh, maybe, maybe this is a little bit broad too, but I think it's a good principle. And so in my experience with uh, club track and athletes who are a little bit younger, uh, maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and you're trying to make, I'm always thinking when I'm working with a young athlete, or honestly any athlete, you want to let them solve the problem. I think it can be difficult, even and even as far as I feel like I've come in sprint biomechanics, I still will try to limit the amount of times I'm trying to tell an athlete to achieve a particular joint position, to say your limb should be here or here or here. I would like much more to give them constraints or a, pu a puzzle or a problem to solve, such as a, a series of like very low wickets or mini hurdles is a good one like two to four inches high. I don't like higher than that because I think it starts to uh, emphasize that that step over the knee action that is actually a break. And so, or just like paint sticks on the ground, something like that and say, hey, you're going to go run over these and maybe you're actually going to race the person next to you. Maybe we have two lanes of them and you're going to only run with one arm. So now they have to self-organize one arm uh, while going over those, those wickets or those uh, paint sticks or whatever they're going to do. You could also say, hey, we're going to do uh, we're going to run over these sticks three times or even not sticks, maybe just maybe just run and say the first time I want you to run as tall as you can, be as tall as you can. And then we'll do three or four sprints and each sprint I want you to squat down a little bit lower and to, until finally maybe you're in a, a very squatty type run. And you can say, hey, how did that feel? How did each of those feel? And it's I think that's important because so often we in the speed training sense, maybe the track and field sense, it's almost as if this this mentality exists like we coaches hold the keys and we know all the, the magic positions to get to that are going to get you to run really fast. But then the problem is, is that the timing starts to go out the window. The position gets prioritized and the timing 
goes out the window and working with gravity goes out the window and working the shin as a lever and the foot as a lever starts to go out the window. And actually, I heard this uh, idea on a recent Instagram live uh, that Rafe Kelly did. And I, I forget the name of the uh, woman who was on. She was a dance uh, instructor. And I, but something was said that was really cool in that in the form of dance um, and there's a lot of times people can get more followers or more notoriety or attraction by doing dance positions and shapes that look uh, aesthetically as the norm. And you see it all the time too with uh, like you'll see people doing like high knees over wickets and stuff like that. Stuff where there's where people are missing the ground literally because they're trying to run so high or there's no shin drop or, or not no shin drop, but there's, there's diminished shin drop and there's things that are causing the athlete to fight themselves. But everyone loves it. It's just um, socially accepted beauty in these these drills. And so I I try to my priority for working with young athletes with speed is just to get them to work in different constraints and understand how different things feel and if it felt faster to them. Did this feel faster? Did this feel better? Did it feel worse? Hey, let's run tall. Did that feel worse? Yeah, I felt like I kind of wasn't really hitting the ground. Uh, You know, stuff like that. And so things just to help them find their own path without putting things in their head that they're probably going to have for a very long time, if not forever. And they're just going to assume that's the way it is versus learning to use their own body on a very deep level and uh, learning to feel things. I think feeling is really the huge missing component when it comes to uh, speed training these days. So long answer, it probably got on a little bit of a soapbox, but that's something that I definitely like talking about. Uh, next question by Unlimited Athlete, what's the purpose of eccentric loading for speed and jumps? Well, it depends uh, what you mean by eccentrics. Uh, Darian Barr has, uh, I, I really do go by this more so, is looking at running and all movement more as a series of isometrics. Where does the isometric hit in the muscle and then where and how are the levers of the joints working? Uh, I think the Russians call it like quasi-isometrics and I've written about that in Uh, my two books on some level where that's like the third phase is you have the concentric or the shortening, you have the eccentric or the lengthening, and then you have the isometric. And then you have like this explosive isometric where it's like the muscles firing, the tendons locking up and the joints are doing its thing. I'm not a a big eccentric, like heavy eccentric person. I I like slow eccentrics and slow, also slow up phases as um, was spoken about in the last podcast with Joel Reinhardt and Andrew Cormier. Largely just because athletes, just to keep athletes from cheating lifts to get numbers and then relying on the plyos and the, and the power and the speed stuff to kind of get the job done from the other elements of things. So it, when, when I talk eccentric, I'm usually talking a slower controlled eccentric just to help an athlete get a good position in the lift and, and not try to compensate too much. Last question here is how do you t- uh, like to teach hip extension? Uh, which that's a good question because I think that I'll, I'll use an Adarian Bar philosophy or an idea here. I, I, I'm not, this is just my uh, recollection of things that he has said. But basically, if you put the, he's talked about crashing the ship, and I'll relate to how this, uh, or crashing the plane, and I'll relate to how this fits into this. But I don't think athletes need to be taught to extend or taught to push, because if you want to go somewhere, what do you do? You have to generate an impulse to get going. You can't not engage muscles and work with the ground to do it. And to think that this thing that you've been doing since you were one, or probably earlier for some people, walking and then kind of toddle running and then running, as I've watched my children do, like to think that the human body doesn't know how to do that or isn't 
equipped or geared to do that, I think is, you know, as if we have to come in and tell it to do that, I think can be kind of limiting. And, and so the thing I would think about is what can facilitate, how can we set the body up to get a better like impulse that, that, that hit at the bottom where everything is set up, everything is loaded and then ready to explode and then ready to recycle. And so I'll, I'll just keep this simple by saying I would say that I like the principle a lot of delayed knee extension. And so just, just on an early level, just seeing people who can delay knee extension and doing things like um, David O'Sullivan's slouch exercise, which go to the David O'Sullivan podcast and check that one out, that, that slouch over the, the folded bent knee, seeing if you can extend the hip without extending the knee first, that's a big one. And then when we're actually running, I just like, um, I picked this up from a dairy and just cues that. And again, everyone's going to respond to different cues. I like these cues personally. I think they work really well for a lot of people. But cues that re- revolve around the feet. The idea of, of pronating the foot and being done with it. Or feeling uh, just the impulse and the arch of the foot. And then as soon as you feel that impulse, you're getting on to the next step. And beyond that, because otherwise we might be wasting time by extending too long. So just teaching athletes to be in touch with their feet. When are your feet loading? And how is that loading carrying you into the next stride without um, over pushing and overdoing it? Okay, let's go on to the next question. Uh, Sayon Baller says, thoughts on hang power snatches? Uh, I like hang power snatches. <laughs> I like Olympic lifts. I, I've used them a lot. I program them in, program them in for athletes, and uh, I'm a big fan. I think that snatches are harder to, well, as long as you start with, with light weights and you don't make it a competition, uh, it's almost harder to use um, a, a less pure extension uh, manner. <laughs> How do I want to say this? You can't cheat it. I think you can't cheat it quite as much as you can cheat like a hang clean. So I think that's good. I like doing hang power split snatches and those types of things. But just to note with any Olympic lift and any Olympic pull, and I remember um, Max Ada telling me this when I had the opportunity to uh, train with him and do a podcast with him a couple of years ago, is he had showed me a picture of an, uh, a lifter. It was on the wall. It's like an Iron Mind, one of those Iron Mind posters. And this guy... He was in the middle of his kind of hinge, the hinge part of his pull with who knows how much weight, like 400 some pounds, maybe more. And his back was just really neutral. It was not like chest up, butt back arched or anything like that. It was those, those two diaphragms, that pelvic diaphragm and the breathing diaphragm were lined up and there was this power zone there. And I think this is what really can get people with the Olympic lifts. And I, I think I touched on this with Angus Bradley, but this idea that Yes, the Olympic lifts will make you more powerful and they're great for coordination and they can even work that delayed knee extension too because if you don't pull too soon in them, you do delay knee extension and you get a little bit more out of your glutes and you, you can learn that rhythm and that patience that fits that lift. But if you are doing them and you don't have, you can't like descend that posterior pelvic floor well and you can't create space in the pelvic bowl then the shape change has to come somewhere. And if that comes from anteriorly tilting more to get that hinge and not just to get the hinge, but to keep putting weight on too. I think that's something we don't look at or just take right as a, as a thing is that when cleans are going up and snatches are going up, ask yourself, why is it going up? Why is that lift improving? Is it because I'm becoming more powerful, more coordinated, more fast twitch, more fast twitch, more, uh, or is it, um, because I'm just getting more meat on my back and shoulders. And not only that, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think for a lot of sports, that's a really good thing, unless you just really have to watch body weight carefully, like I did with like track and field high jump uh, and things like that, or just other individual sports that are for time or height or distance and those uh, possibilities. 
But also, are you lifting more weight because you started to adapt that bracing strategy in your low back as this like linchpin to really pull, to really hinge that up and you have more muscle back there? And in that case, you might be taking the load away a little bit from your glutes and your hamstrings in typical hip extension. And so, I, all I'm saying is I think that Olympic lifts are awesome, but I do think there are nuances that can make them even better. So, being more for speed, keeping a good thorax and a lower back position and then doing i love split catches hang the hang split snatch is one of my favorites it's uh one of those things where it's like the coordination raises all ships and that's a very high coordination movement and it's a lot of fun for athletes so that is one that i really enjoy all right next question is jay gill jay gill asks best cues or general approach to single leg jumping uh, off the non-dominant foot okay so this is a cool one because okay it was the summer right before my senior year, right before I, t- I finally gave in and took a strength and conditioning course and started doing kind of slow, deep squats and actually really helped my knees out. And like Jake Tura has talked about the slower squats and slower loading being good for tendon adaptation. So this was before that, I believe I was having some left knee, which was my takeoff leg issues. And so my solution in the meantime to still try to dunk was to try to jump off my right leg and do it, which was significantly worse. But honestly, one is just practice. Just get the reps in. You haven't jumped off your off leg that much. You just need to do it. When I was coaching high jump as well, I did this a lot back in my time at uh, Wilmington Colleges. We would oftentimes finish practice with jumps off the the non-dominant leg, like five or ten scissor jumps, something like that, just to get a level of balance. Uh, But what I noticed as well in that time in terms of non-dominant leg jumping was that I bought a few DVDs by Alex uh, Fuzzcon. I don't think they're available anymore, but it was like a best of British track and field series. And a lot of the drills were based off of just a ton of like straight leg bounding type stuff, like straight leg bounding into sprinting back into straight leg bounding. And a lot of stuff that kind of got you off the foot and big toe in interesting ways and got you to connect that to your running and movements. A lot of like straight leg bounding short into long into short. And I will say I really love drills that play with magnitudes. I think that's understated and underrated in our field as drills that play with magnitudes because it's so easy just to say everything max. That's the paradigm, everything max. And I've talked about this a lot is that we need a spectrum. We need a spectrum of things. We don't always, if we always are doing a spectrum and we never go max, we're not going to hit our full potential, but there should be a balance between uh, maximal and then spectrum. And so there was a lot of a spectrum of these types of movements. And I found one day, I would do them. I had my athletes um, doing them. And then I would do the drills with them, just I'd warm up with them. And I always wanted to, if I was going to do anything or have athletes do anything, I wanted to do it too. And I found after about two months of doing that, I was in the gym one day and I hadn't been jumping off my non-dominant leg or anything, but I just tried to see, kind of see how high can I get up off my right leg. And I jumped about three or four inches higher than I, I had in a long time, like definitely higher than the last time I had tried and maybe higher than I even could have back when I was a senior in high school doing it all the time. And so I just felt like that the straight leg bound type thing, it really forces you to get in touch with that like negative swing speed of your leg, that sensory map on the backside of your leg and how that foot is coming down on a more rigid leg onto the ground. And I think when we're working non-dominant side stuff, we it's hard to, to coordinate in space at, at velocity. That's like the last thing that comes in. So I'm probably getting a l- little bit long on this answer, but I just think that's an interesting one. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. 
Well, talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365 day money back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Okay. Bartek asks, uh, vestibular training assessment, your take and valuable resources for that, etc. So I think the first time I'd heard of vestibular training was in like a Z Health. I took like a Z Health intro to Z Health type course. Uh, we've had a few people on the podcast talking about it. I know I've, I've, I don't know if Dan Fichter's talked about it on the podcast, but I know he does a lot of brain-based stuff. Um, for me, my own just personal feeling, and this is just a, this is just a bias. I, I actually don't, I wouldn't say I have enough experience testing tons of athletes to know this, but my, my general take is that most good athletes don't have vestibular issues. It's more going to be like general population or people who are like really pretty unathletic who have that as their low hanging fruit. And so I think knowing that stuff knows when to watch for that. I don't feel like I've really seen it in the, at least the pretty functional athletes that I work with, but I could be wrong. It's probably something where I just need to, would need to do more, more work and learn a little bit more about that. I will say though, I really think it is beneficial to uh, and I have talked, I know when Dan Fichter was on, I think we talked about this, was that when we, like, why is basketball the best warm-up? Well, it's, I mean, for dunking, if I want to dunk a basketball pickup, a game of pickup is awesome. And part of the reason it's awesome is not only the, I think, the muscular and the intention component, but it's also the visual component. You're, you're tracking a ball, you're reacting to a ball. You might, your vestibular system is probably also going to be challenged because you are likely going to find yourself perhaps a little off balance at times, trying to keep up with defenders or run around people. You're lighting the body up on every system. And so I do think that that is an interesting uh, concept to, in terms of just getting all systems active. But again, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm enough of an expert in it to really say too much on that one. So uh, you'll probably have to go with someone else exactly for what I think is the best there. All right, next question is uh, Kairosis Op. <laughs> I guarantee I mispronounced that. Okay. Can we do extreme iso lunges every day? Uh, yeah, you absolutely can. I don't see uh, anything wrong with that. I think a lot of that's actually limited by mentally, your mental outputs. And I think if you're like just loving it and really resilient uh, and just can get after it and you have a strong team culture, I think you could probably do a lot more of that stuff, especially too if you're in a limited, a, a limited environment with other things. So, but otherwise... Just how I tend to do it is I would say for the most part, like on your low days, I like that type of effort in if let's say I had three high days and three low days, the low days, you could do more of it. And the high days uh, where you're sprinting fast and, and doing plyos or heavier lifting, uh, you can maybe just do a minute just to kind of finish that, that day off and maybe get the muscle to some like a little better length and things like that. That's my conservative uh, um, approach on it. I, I do think you can do them every day. I, I just tend to be a little more conservative with that. Okay, so I had two people who asked uh, kind of the same uh, type of question, which is a really good one. Uh, Saison Training says, what's the best way to get athletes to always train with intent? And then Wayne Ford says, what are some uh, things you've found that can help your athletes give more? 
in terms of their efforts and intent during a workout to get the most out of every session. So I think the very easy answer to this is just do things that are meaningful and that matter to the athletes. And I would say my feeling is, I think, and, and I could go back to myself maybe eight years ago uh, working uh, in the weight room with athletes in particular, because I think this is where this question comes from. Is And Rachel Balkovic said something about this when she was on, is that when she made the transition from uh, strength coach to actual hitting coach in the major leagues, she felt like it was so much easier to motivate the players. They just Because it's their sport, they want to do it. And I think just about any athlete is going to be like that on some level. And I think that sometimes athletes who actually almost are like too excited about the weight room and use that as their refuge because they feel that they can be good there as opposed to maybe some weak licks in their sport. Well, that's something that I think the weight room coach really likes a lot of times. But the question is, is, well, how is the athlete going to end up playing? Are they just kind of uh, you know grinding in here because this is the thing that they can feel good at when they may not feel as good about what they're doing in their sport. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not, I mean, that's, uh, if that's what makes you confident and happy and you, maybe you feel like your ship sailed a little bit with your playing time, I get that. I've had athletes that do that for sure. But I will say is that, uh, and I look at like the work that Austin Yoakum is doing and he's been on this podcast and uh, many others who are just using a lot of like aliveness style training that is, it's almost this intersection of sorts between sports and just games on the playground a little bit and that that kid just exploring their environment jumping on and off of rocks and and jumping off the high slide or something like that where it's just it's just fun and it's um it's kind of an infinite game instead of a finite game where there's not as many hard rules for things so i'll just say this is i think that i didn't have like this answer like well written out so i'm kind of going off the top of my head but the things that i look at are one would be things that uh, the athlete has a level of autonomy in. So either A, maybe they get, uh, and Jamie Smith just talked about this on a recent podcast, maybe there's more some menu systems. They feel like they have an ownership of the process. You're not just the coach telling them all the magical ways to get better, but they have a choice and a voice and they get to pick some things. Again, that's more so a thing with, I think, older athletes versus uh, younger because younger, you have to have some level of basics down and then you can start to make decisions. But having a level of autonomy. Uh, I think also having a level of exploration. I listened to uh, the course that Emergence did, Michael Zwiefel and Tyler Yerby and Sean Mishka. And I really liked their, they had a little weight room like mini course and they just had tons of explorations they would do like bear crawl explorations. And I think crouch, crouching walk explorations, basically where you just get to move around as you uh, as you want, you can try some breakdancing tricks. You can try handstands. You can just try different things and you have autonomy in this movement and you just get to move your body. And so I think that that, that type of stuff is powerful. And then just yeah, parkour type courses, different games that get athletes to do the thing you're trying to get them to do on a level, but they're having fun and they're competing there. And I mean, just think of it, you could think of it this way. I've certainly done this and I've seen Really high-level coaches do this where they say it's time for the athletes who are doing their strength session to come in and warm up. And they're just like, I'll just go play basketball for 10 minutes. And it's as simple as that. It's, it's something that's a lot of fun. And it, uh, this was a group of tennis players. The coach told them just to go play basketball. And I found myself using games a ton as well in the sense. And this was a big trans, uh, transformation for me. And back with the tennis group that I used to work with my first year, nine years ago, just about. We started with all, all the typical, you know, very orderly movements, all the, all the movement prep, and it's on the, 
not I didn't have a whistle, but it's on the clock and you're you're rotating on the clock and you're doing everything in a certain way. And then eventually we switched to just for the most part using a lot of games to warm up. And that was so much better for those athletes, the aliveness, the engagement, the the outputs, the outputs were night and day. I mean, you ask an ath- a group of athletes to go and Lee Taft talks about this too. If you're not a soccer player, playing soccer is an awesome uh, training tool just with all the lateral and the adductor work. Uh, so using using games and using those things. And then within the scope of the actual meat and potatoes and creating intention, I'll say too, one thing I really loved that in the coaches I've got to observe and mentor under is watching the way that uh, Paul Cater, who's been on this podcast, creates intention and focus. I would say, particularly if I had to say one thing that Paul does amazingly well, it's to get you just purely in the moment of what you are doing and to break the chains of any thoughts outside that session or even like predispositions on what you're supposed to be doing in the sense of what you thought this movement maybe should or would have been like in the sense of his usage of uh, rhythm and music and taking something that might have been familiar, but now we're going to do it to this rhythmic pattern, this pattern on this beat and changing your awareness and just really driving you in the moment. So music and rhythm is an awesome way to do that. And that's actually gets me thinking one of the cool, um, I feel, I feel it's cool adaptations I've utilized in the last, um, I would say it's honestly been the last year, maybe even the last nine months is just what I call the rhythm warm up. And it's just get, um, you know, a steady beat. You could use a metronome if you're kind of <laughs> into metronomes, but a steady beat, music with a steady beat. And here's some exercises or here's some basic movements and you're going to do them just to the beat. And then you're going to f- try to find the half step. And that stuff, it's, we don't, I just think because that reminds of us, uh, reminds us of dance almost more than, than what we would consider training. We just kind of throw it the way of, um, I guess what you could say, throw it the way of all the, the balance training out there and just say it just doesn't have a use or something like that because it doesn't produce maximal force. But we know that there's usage for proprioceptive training as well. So I think that all those things are important. That's more like the warm up stuff. And then when it comes to the lifting type work, I think that a lot of athletes just love lifting. I, I, I think it's actually, as I've found, I, I think it's more rare actually for athletes to really not enjoy lifting, but some, some don't, aren't really into it. And then for those who aren't though, I think you have to, again, I will realize that this is not their sport. And so I've never had a problem really with athletes who didn't like lifting because I, what I found is I never presented it to them as something that they had to get better and that you're not going to be good if you don't do this. I just let them experience movements. We did a lot of different types of movements. And over time, I found a lot of those athletes did start to enjoy the weight room. And actually, to be honest, I feel like maybe my contribution for them may have been just teaching them more about fitness for life and, and training their own body than it was in some level, on some level, even the, the specific adaptations I may have given them in sport. But I, I just think the less, um, I think when we come at athletes like almost too hard, like all right, this is how you're going to do it. It's going to be like this and, and X, Y, Z that can, I, I the athletes who might be on the, on the bubble in terms of, um, like strength and resistance training, I think that can push them the other way. But I think when you can really, you can explain to them, Hey, uh, this type of athlete does better on generally on low, on lower reps. You know, you, maybe you're an athlete that's going to do a little better on some higher reps and here's how we're going to do it. And you know what, this, I think this is really going to work well for you. And I'm, you know, we're not going to push the numbers and it's like, Nature is like, nature doesn't rush. Nature, it's like a tree. It grows. I'm growing trees in my yard right now. Uh, we're just starting to plant them. And it's something that 
grows uh, slowly and it's over time and it doesn't it's not something that turns in two seconds so I, I know it's not like that's probably not like the exact recipe or formula but those are some things that i've found that are really interesting and i just think that the more at the end of the day maybe when we look at everything that makes playing a game and playing a sport fun and engaging and all the reward centers that come with that um, we have to realize that athletes uh, that drives athletes first and i don't think it's a compromise to try to start put, putting more of those into uh, the system that they um, that they're going to be training in in a regular basis. So I'm glad that that uh, uh, question was asked and by two people. So clearly it's on a lot of people's minds. All right. Next question is fit for golf. Uh, the balance of hypertrophy and RFD or rate of force development in throwing and swinging sports. So uh, I'll just say this. I actually haven't done much at all really work with for example uh, like baseball or golf or a lot of those that we we think of i have good experience with tennis so i'll just just say a couple of things that come to my head and one is that i i do know in like pitching or i did throw javelin and the saying that mass equals gas i think eric cressy might have coined that or i think he did actually i'm not sure <laughs> maybe you guys can look it up and see where that came from but I, I think of that from the sense of an athlete with just a little more, an athlete who's extremely lean versus an athlete who has a little more meat on their bones. Uh, the athlete with more meat on their bones has a greater potential for compression. And I think that's, um, you know, a, a, everything else that might con contribute as well, maybe more muscle, just more momentum, et cetera. I think that the more compression that you get uh, from just being a little bit bigger might be helpful there. But then obviously you don't want to, like other uh, guests have said, on the show, as soon as you get to that point where you're losing range of motion and range of motion is compromised because of the increases in size, then that's when you really need to start cutting that out. And outside of that, I mean, so I, I don't know how I would really put RFD in there, but I know for throwing and swinging sports, and I think Bobby Stroop uh, talked about this recently, which is like using things like, I, I know he's a big weighted glove fan. I haven't got to use those yet, but I I love mace bells and indian clubs and mace and um just anything that you spiral and again that's another thing that doesn't tend to fit with the aesthetic of the weight room we look at this more like a dance or a, something that's just not right <laughs> something that's that's um, um selling out almost to this like you know just pure grind ethos and i think that we can we want to use and, and optimize and both ends of that element so i, I really like using sp things that spiral with athletes who are throwing and swinging with uh, sports. Okay, next question. Brain first performance. I love Gary Ward's combo on pronation a while back. He mentioned he would not advise powerlifters to pronate under load, but he would for anyone else. Uh, my question is, if running and jumping causes more force than weight does uh, most of the time, why would he recommend it for that, but not for lifting? Thanks for all you do. Okay, this is a fantastic question uh, because it kind of goes into the... I'll, I'll, I'll start with this is one thing that Adarian uh, Barr said to me. It was one of the last like, like big note things I put in my notebook uh, when I was back in California and able to learn from him in person was that when we talk about pronation and supination in gait in just basic walking or things that we do very slowly, we might be experiencing more of the full ranges of or, or the traditional classical ranges of supination than pronation than supination again. And I, I, we do see this in, in running and faster things too. But once things speed up, once things are going quicker and really, really going, it almost becomes more about managing forces in, in an ideal situation than it is really making sure we fully you know, pronated and fully supinated. In sprinting, there's, there's co-contractions and isometrics that 
we're not going to go through the full maximal range of pronation when we sprint because that would take way too much time. We only have about a tenth of a second in sprinting. So we have to uh, get just the right amount of supination and we have to follow the circles that make sprinting happen. And so uh, with sprinting, it's not, you know, we talk about like triple jump is a good example or depth jumping or whatever where we, we're experiencing 10 times body weight. And well, the question is, is how is the body um, absorbing those loads? And even jogging, I think, is like three or four and sprinting's higher. So these are multiple loads of body weight. But the, the thing that I think sets us up is that the body has domes and arches and levers to deal with how that force is, is managed and manipulated. If you were doing a triple jump, let's just say bounding. So if you're bounding and instead of being able to bound and hit the ground and, and transition off of it. So what I mean by that is being able to hit the ground, have your foot set up the proper arches. It's starting in a supinated state. It's pronating a little bit as you hit just enough uh, and not too much. And then resupinating as you uh, come off the ground. And as that's happening, your shin is starting at a negative angle. It's rolling towards a positive one as you go. And there's also this tibial rotation and femoral rotation that's happening. There's all these subtle rotations that are happening to help just mitigate that up through the bone structure of the body, which that is what is taking the immense brunt of this load in conjunction with uh, Keith Barr's talked about the muscle and tendon acting like a sheet. And I, we, it's not just the muscle. And so I'll, I just have this funny idea or illustration in my head. If you are bounding and instead of being able to hit flat ground and roll over it with the shin and, and using some subtle uh, pronation, supination or circles of the feet, or spinning to get off of that uh, into the next bound. And instead, you just had to hit a slant board that, that, was, a, that was angled directly um, so that basically when you hit that bound, everything went right directly into that slant board right back up into your body. I'm pretty sure you would break some things. And think about that. And now think no joints can move. The shin can't move. Everything is totally locked and rigid. I'm pretty sure your muscles would completely explode. The body uses joints and joint motions to overcome these massive, massive, massive forces. And you have more degrees of freedom to do it too. Uh, that's the thing with sprinting and jumping is you have more, think of it like steering wheels on your car. You, if, if a squat, a powerlifting squat, you only have two steering wheels, um, one or two. And in jumping and sprinting, maybe you have five or six. You have, and you can turn different wheels in different directions to help dissipate these, for, these immense forces. And it's, uh, but imagine you have a supercomputer turning the wheels and they're all being turned in like thousandths of a second very precisely by your brain. So thank you, brain. Uh, that's maybe a little bit more about what, what we'd be getting out of our, our, our brain in the uh, jumping and sprinting and bounding and everything dynamic. So, and even, even in powerlifting too, I think if you're doing a squat that is like more not like a powerlifting squat but like a like a straight down squat like an olympic lifter might go to hit um to to catch out the bottom you actually do see pronation happen naturally you see an internal rotation moment uh, and then they'll resupinate back on the way up so uh, just some interesting things about things to think about with that i don't know if i have like any real exact pointers there but if nothing else maybe have an appreciation for how the body uses circles and spirals and levers and all these subtle little joint actions to dampen those forces and it doesn't nat does it um, naturally and so and and finally too i when it comes to especially like high impact like plyometrics or even sprinting for example i really do think that the tension that starts in the feet and the tensioning that starts in the feet and the arches of the feet 
is is just such a huge that's like the first linchpin and then a pronation and supination are almost kind of secondary constructs to that as i see it all right uh McAllister one says specific foot exercises uh for high arches and then i'll actually just couple these together because i think that the answer can somewhat come from the same place is that well so specific foot exercises for high arches and then suggested protocol for rehabbing achilles tendon work um, I'm just going to recommend out Gary Ward's wedges. Uh, and then those those things have been a huge game changer for me. Um, I don't have high arches, but my calcaneus bone and my heel bone have historically not been uh, moved very well, especially my right ankle, which I sprained a couple times back in my early 20s. And using his wedges to get uh, my calcaneus moving was just an absolute game changer with my lower body leg, my my leg health and my my Achilles tendon health and all that stuff is massive. And so I, with the high arches, like I just think that as long as you're, you're getting good foot opposition and you can, you can move your foot the way you need to, I, I think that's great. So I would just defer to some uh, Gary Ward's work and his wedge system and the things that he utilizes there. Uh, and then Alec also asked how to incorporate rhythm in training. Uh, I'd mentioned that previously in how to it, just using uh, music and beats and in, in whatever you're doing. I, I love using just ground-based stuff, getting on the ground and doing like hip twists on the ground. Uh, you can do push-ups with push-ups with a hip twist. You can do like single leg glute bridges to a rhythm. You can do like the, the, the you know, stuff that break dancers do basically on a very basic level, but then sprint drills on a rhythm. You can do, uh, Paul Cater would do sprint drills or speed ladder on a rhythm. If you think of the speed ladder too, I think I, I really do in my sessions with Paul, so often we co- go to the speed ladder and just think it's this, you know, this is terrible thing because it is so short stepped and nonspecific. But when it's a rhythmic tool, I think it's fine. I've been so energized and warmed up in training and warming up with Paul and, and having that be a part of um, what we were doing and just a creative part. It was just fun and creative and just moving differently. It wasn't just it wasn't really at all about just just shuffle through as fast as you can. That was not the point. It was finding rhythms and having some time and space operation. So hopefully that gives you some good. Uh, thoughts and ideas there. Okay. Coach Jason says, how do you structure a warm-up for elastic or max speed sprinting? Uh, then the idea of games into drills onto progressive efforts. So I'll answer that question uh, with kind of an experiment that I ran this past winter that I feel uh, worked really well. And I got the idea from Rob Assis, actually, uh, the last time he was on the podcast. And we were kind of riffing about doing uh jumps training for track and field but doing jumps training and like what if you could superset a long jump like go do three long jumps in the pit and then go play uh, pickup basketball for five ten minutes and then come back and do some more long jumps and you know i mean you'd have to have quite the setup though you'd have to have like an indoor track facility that has those basketball courts in the middle or something like that you have to take your your jumping spikes off or but I had in the aftermath of considering that idea, one thing I did, and this also, I got this idea when Bobby Stroop was talking about how athletes could run faster linear sprints after they do change of direction work. So after you're uh, hitting that COD, those like you could say uh, pro agility tests or whatever, then if you run the 40 uh, yard dash after that, you actually could run it faster than if you just tried to warm up specifically for the 40. So that, um, that real uh, explosive lateral cut action could improve it's almost like it just wakes up the full rotational potential of the body is the way i see it how many layers of coordination are we weaving in the system to really light up the body and so one thing i started doing was um it was a long winter 
here in Ohio. Uh, longer than I, I, being spoiled in California, I had to adjust to it. And one of the things that I found uh, to start doing was um, we have enough space to run a 20 meter dash in the gym that I'm working out of. And in that gym, there's space to do uh, like play games, like to play handball or soccer with little goals, things like that. And then there's space to do a 20 yard dash. And so what eventually I started doing was I decided to um, play a game like let's play soccer and we'll play for five ten minutes and then I have the cones set up to, or the the timer set up to do a 20 yard dash and we would just go back and forth through that and I found that it depends on the athlete but for me personally I dropped a tenth on my 20 uh, yard doing that and one guy dropped um, like like 0.15 in like instantly like it was instant versus doing another typical warm-up and so uh, that's the first experiment I've done with that, and I just thought it was awesome. And so I, it, it's it's just fun. It's we're blending, um, we're blending just two very totally different worlds that we don't typically associate with each other. But the more you can use things that light up the body on every level, and then you bring that 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 thing with more degrees of freedom. That's that's has more, um, just more areas to it, and then you're condensing it down into sprint as fast as you can, and then going opening back up to all right, let's let's light the body up again. Let's open up the channels again. You know, there's nothing, there's no, um, and too, like mentally, I think it's great mentally because if we're doing, and it's nothing, I, I, I love doing like fly tens and so, things like that. But when we, or, or I, high jump is a good one. And just trying to like jump the same bar over and over and over and over again, you start to mentally beat yourself up a little bit. And I think it shows up in how the body moves from a fluid perspective. And we start to really get in these almost like technical ruts of sorts. And just blowing everything open by playing a game for a few minutes has had a, a big impact. So I will uh, offer that up as a maybe unique answer to your question, Coach Jason. Okay, uh, Pratush asks, uh, as a coach, what are you looking at in real time when an athlete is performing an acceleration? Uh, what is the mental process in your head? So acceleration is, uh, JB Marin had said this when he was on the show, is uh, robots so they've gotten robots to do some amazing things backflips and running and i think like running and jumping over things but they can't they haven't yet had an athlete able to do a, like a 40-yard dash and acceleration because um acceleration is just so complex there is yeah, when you're there's there's because each step is going to offer a whole new set of instructions based off the one before it you're starting with a contact time of around i believe 0.18 and then every step thereafter, the contact time is less and all the joint angles change. And so for me, the things that I just tend to focus on, I'm sorry, this will be a little bit of a general answer, is uh, I, I really just generally tend to focus on, well, well one is, is starting positions in the sense of, uh, I'm not necessarily coaching them to one position, but more just thinking of what is, are the arches of your feet working in this position? That's an Adarian Bar thing that I learned is if you don't have any sort of activation in your foot arches when you're on the line, you're not going to have it in step one or two or three. So um, do we have at least some of the basic structures of the body set for what will happen when we are going? But then beyond that, I'm looking at the timing. I'm looking at also where is an athlete's intention? A lot of times an athlete accelerates and they've been coached to push long, hit a triple extension post and all that stuff that makes the second strike come in really slow um, and also can mess up like the the shin drop or the hip height and stuff like that. And so a lot of times you'll, you'll just ask, well, what is the athlete's intention here? What are they thinking about? What are they trying to do? 
And then I'll try to get it more into a feel and timing based system where we're trying to feel what the feet are doing, feel the shin drop on the first couple steps, feel how the arms are connecting with the legs, and just to feel the general timing of the movement. Also, just feel uh, posture and postural feeling, I feel like is really important there. Uh, it was um, Nick Winkleman in his book, The Language of Coaching, had. Uh, a bit on using pieces of tape actually as sensory feedback to help athletes with their posture and i thought that was really interesting i actually haven't done that one yet but that's a big one and i've i actually really one thing i've just been using a lot lately and really leaning a lot on lately is very specific foot activation using a, a darian bars arch training type setups or just basically sensation in the foot in the arch barefoot to help feel the the transition of the foot and pressing and squatting down into that and then going off into a sprint and utilizing that and, and basically like equipping an athlete with sensation first and then having them feel that as they work their way out. It was just because there's so much complexity and things are happening so fast, sometimes I think you just need to uh, to feel something and notice something and then go with it and see what your body does with it. I think that the more, a, a very like positional-based acceleration uh, is something that I, I don't tend to do as much. So I'm just always looking at the timing and it's a super complex question, but I hopefully, hopefully that gives you a good answer of some things that I've been utilizing. And I have found that foot pressure-based strategy to be extremely helpful, uh, especially in athletes who have probably been overlifted and haven't really spent enough time working on foot pressure and things like that. Okay, Power and Prowess asks, optimal level of stiffness, stiffness and compliance in athletes' assessments and training. Uh, I'll just say this, uh, just watch an athlete do double leg hops with the hands on the hips and you'll pretty quickly see uh, what their general strategy is. And don't say anything. Don't say do. Don't tell them to do anything. Athletes that just look like an iron rod when they hit the ground are not compliant enough. And if you listen to the Justin Moore and Campo episode that they did on Justin as a case study, and Justin was too stiff, and all the things that they did to help him, um, that's re really helpful. There, uh, a helpful one there. And it's when you just have to get through watching people hop. But people who just do hops and they just look like iron rods. We almost prioritize stiffness so much, we don't think that that's a negative thing. You need to yield to the ground. So, But you also don't want to yield too much. You don't want the shin to fall too fast. That's just something where good coaching and observation uh, is definitely going to help you out. So, okay, uh, we're running just about out of time. So I'm going to try to take just a couple more. So let's go with this one. Uh, just a couple that are a little different. Uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the ones we get on speed and jumping and things like that. So let's do two that are slightly different. Uh, SAF73 asks... Weight room training, plyos, ETC, as it pertains to high school, uh, mid-distance, cross-country. So yeah, I, I, this is the one that I, I like to answer because I actually had the opportunity to work with a very elite 800-meter runner uh, this past winter. And we did a fair amount of plyometrics. And I think it was really successful. I think we got really good results. And we, we just kept it simple. Uh, and I think if you look at like what Sebastian Coe did, who is the legendary british uh, 800 uh, meter runner and miler is uh, look just basic things like bounding and hurdle hops it doesn't have to be a whole lot more complex than that and for what i was doing we did bounding um, we did different types of hurdle hops and we played games and between those three constructs and entities you're going to be doing pretty well we also before we got into that stuff we did a ton of just basic hands on the hips double and single leg jumps and just working and feeling the feet in different ways and manners and one of the big things too, and I really, this would be important for anybody, but if you're a distance runner, I think it's even more important. I mean, I don't know. I think it's important for everybody. So I don't know how much more important it really is, but the idea of doing uh, like pogo hops 
and trying to feel the least amount of muscle that you possibly can. So hands on your hips, and now you're going to do pogo hops through and just feeling the absolute least amount of muscle in that effort. How elastic exactly can I make this? And so therefore, you're, you're kind of taking uh, the jump height out of it. You're taking that pure height out of it. You just want to make it easy. And I think that's, um, even Flanagan said that, we don't oftentimes coach plyometrics under that pretense. And we should. Uh, we should coach sprinting under that pretense in many cases. I think I mentioned this study in my book, Speed Strength, is that they, there was a mechanical modeling done. What if sprinting was basically just the bones and, and tendons or something like that? And, and we got muscle out of the way. <laughs> and I think the, the calculation, I have no idea how they did this, but the calculation was that they could uh, run, people could run like 20% faster when you took the muscle out. And so all I'm saying is I think that we, we really need to give more credit to the skeletal structure and the free energy structure of the body than we often do. And that, by the way, also is just oh, just a prelude. I have a, a course called Elastic Essentials that will be coming out soon, and it's going to feature a ton of this stuff. And I think you guys will really love it. So stay tuned for more of that. Uh, last thing is we'll go with a swimming question. I love talking swimming questions. We really don't have too much on this podcast about it. So if you ever work with swimmers, this last one is for you. Thomas uh, Capuccio says, hey, Joel, do you differentiate between swimming techniques, uh, the amount of heavy strength training they do? elastic versus muscular athletes so for example a backstroker and for those of you who don't know swimming backstrokers are oftentimes not always but usually um, much usually <laughs> uh, leaner and lankier versus a breaststroker breaststrokers are usually much more muscular thomas says i found that normally simultaneous technique athletes are more muscle driven comparing to the others i would like to know your thoughts on that and the effects of too much heavy barbell has on the rhythmic component of swimming technique sure so this is a good question and yeah just so generally speaking, in working with swimmers and, and really any athlete, the first thing I look at is if it's a culture that, that does like and prioritize weightlifting and, and strength training, then you want to give them enough that, that makes them happy and makes them feel strong and kind of works that like central, you know, that, um, that total organism strength, if you will. So you want to improve that as you can without having athletes lose range of motion, without you know, creating a negative shape change without putting too much muscle where it doesn't need to be. And for a backstroker, they do not need a lot of extra muscle up front. So the pecs and front delts that you get from bench pressing, things like that, where a, a breaststroker is kind of the opposite. So uh, generally, I would have a lot of the same things in a training program for those two types of athletes. But with backstroke, uh, you definitely want to put a lot more emphasis on, well, one, just holding them back on bench press because a lot of times for them, it's more it's it can be more cultural and i want to keep up with xyz but at the end of the day just limiting i don't think it has to be anything like really truly major because the weight room is all general as it stands but just limiting them in some of those like upper body pushing movements i found to be a valuable thing and outside of that uh with the rotation is a big one too so with a backstroker for example just looking at the ability of the ribs to move i mean breaststrokers too though i've i've uh, worked with breaststrokers who actually had really short pulls because they're, they were in anterior tilt with a huge rib flare and they, they couldn't move out of it. So that actually kept them from being able to do what they needed to do. So for them, just being able to, and I think a lot of breaststrokers might end up in anterior tilt because of just the nature of, they usually have more glutes than the other swimmers. Sometimes they, sometimes they could have that. And so making sure that uh, they can get those front ribs down to be able to prolong their stroke distance is big. And then, yeah, um, just having some more rotational options in there for backstrokers, like things like with your back on a physio ball, 
doing and i know people some people might think this is stupid but i always felt like every backstroker who did this really seemed to like it and seemed to claim to have good benefits but just like being on a physio ball on your back and just doing like i, I wouldn't necessarily say it's stroke replicating because you cannot replicate the weight room in the water but doing things on their back where they were rotating and doing similar motions with their arms and they would usually say that it felt more specific from a core perspective not a hand and arm perspective and that is the thing with the weight room is you can't the weight room this is the final thing I'll say about swimming is the weight room is a very rigid, it can be a very rigid environment where swimming you just like track, you want to react to the ground, feel your foot on the ground. And in swimming, you don't want to like, you don't want to attack the water with the rigidity of the weight room. That's not going to turn out well to be a faster swimmer. So just learning to be reactive to the weights and not to like brace against them, I think is a really big general strategy there. So that uh, concludes this Q&A. There's a few questions that I missed. Sorry, guys. Uh, hopefully I get to them next time. But thank you again for everyone who put questions in. It's always a lot of fun to do these. And uh, we'll see you again next week with a great guest.